Welcome to the Communique podcast. The objectives of the Communiques are to develop, produce and distribute electronic educational publications that encourage clinical practice to change for the benefits of patients, residents, health and aged care services and the whole community. Over half of our subscribers attribute a change in their clinical practice due to the communique. The print versions in these podcasts present cases of premature and preventable deaths that occur in health and aged care settings. We explore three areas. What happened? Why did it happen? And what action can we take to prevent it from happening again? The cases are the accounts from the completed medico-legal death investigation of the coroner's court and our team of senior medical and nursing practitioner present this coronial information in a manner and format that is familiar to clinicians. Our three publications are the clinical communique, focusing on acute care, the future leaders communique, designed for recent health graduates, and the residential aged care communique, which examines deaths in aged care or nursing homes. The online print versions are available at our website, thecommuniques.com, which also includes the resources recommended for each edition. Welcome to episode seven of our podcast series. This features material from our February 2021 edition of the Residential Aged Care Communique. I'm Professor Joseph Ibrahim, the Editor-in-Chief of that edition. This podcast focuses on medication safety in aged care home. We present two cases where the deaths of aged care facility residents were investigated by the coroner's court. The cases involved missed doses of anticonvulsant medication and inadvertent administration of the wrong medication. The podcast begins with my editorial. We then examine the two case reports in some detail. The second half of the podcast provides a systems approach to improve medication management. I also encourage you to visit our website where the large number of resources relevant to medication safety are listed. Let's now listen to the editorial. Contents of this podcast include an editorial, case number one, the facts of the matter, case number two, an interrupted drug round, and expert commentary, human factors, and medication safety. Welcome to a new year, which we hope is better than the last. In this, our first edition for 2021, we focus on systems-based solutions to one of the most common and dangerous aspects of aged care, medication management. We have two geriatric medicine specialists, each presenting a case where a resident death was investigated by the court because of potential medication errors. Dr. Huang Nguyen presents the case of a resident who had seizures following missed doses of their regular anticonvulsant medication. Dr. Supriya Ramakrishnan presents a case where a resident was administered the wrong medication, inadvertently receiving the medication prescribed for another resident. The cases highlight the importance of having robust medication management systems as the residents' frailty and multiple comorbidities increases their susceptibility to poor outcomes such as hospitalisation and death. Another important lesson arising from these cases is that it is often the interplay of several factors that contribute to the death of a resident from a medication error 
and small changes may have profound effects. Our expert commentary is provided by two senior project officers at Safer Care Victoria, Dr. Rafaela Schnitka, a human factors specialist, and Ms. Jen Morris. Their insightful approach helps us to understand how errors can occur to avoid jumping to simplistic conclusions with an all too common response that if only the staff members were more careful, these medication errors would have been avoided. Our experts explain the nature of hindsight and outcome bias and offer an approach on how to apply systems thinking to medication safety. Urging staff to be more careful is not enough. Instead, strong systems-based responses are required that change the conditions in which humans work. Let's now listen to a description of our first case report titled, The Facts of the Matter. The Facts of the Matter, from Case Precy author, Dr. Huang Nguyen. Clinical Summary. Miss A.D. was a 60-year-old resident of a residential aged care facility with Down syndrome associated with late-onset myoclonic epilepsy and Alzheimer's dementia. Her past medical history was also significant for bilateral pulmonary emboli and recent hospital admissions for unwitnessed falls and aspiration pneumonia. Miss AD was prescribed 150 milligrams of the anticonvulsant phenytoin, also known by the trade name Dilantin, as a liquid suspension twice daily for management of her epilepsy. The last medical review by her neurologist was in August, who deemed Miss AD to be seizure-free with stable behaviours on this regimen. Miss AD's aged care facility utilises the best-dose electronic medication system to place orders with their affiliated pharmacy. Staff placed an order for a new bottle of Phenetuan on the 1st of October. Over the period from the 1st to the 5th of October, multiple messages passed between the pharmacy and the facility via this electronic platform to convey that the phenytoin liquid suspension could not be sourced. On the afternoon of the 3rd of October, a fax from the facility was sent to Miss AD's general practice, Dr. JR, to inquire about a substitute formulation. Dr. JR received the correspondence on the 4th of October and attended the facility on the 5th of October. Dr. JR prescribed chewable phenytoin tablets in place of the liquid suspension and informed the pharmacy. Unbeknownst to Dr. JR, Miss AD was administered her last dose of phenytoin suspension at 0800 hours on the 4th of October and had missed two regular doses of phenytoin over the previous day. Miss AD was administered chewable phenytoin tablets on the evening of the 5th of October. At approximately 0730 hours on the 6th of October, Miss AD was discovered with vomitus in her mouth and on the bed sheets, and an ambulance was summoned. On assessment, she was hypoxic and tachycardic, with increased work of breathing and upper airway noises. Miss AD was transferred to the closest regional hospital, where she had a generalised tonic-clonic seizure in the emergency department with deterioration in her respiratory and conscious state. Miss AD was admitted to the ward and treated for seizures with anticonvulsant medication and intravenous antibiotics for aspiration pneumonia. On the 8th of October, Miss AD's condition deteriorated with increased respiratory distress and difficulty clearing secretions that precipitated another decrease in her conscious state. 
On consultation with her family, palliative care was initiated two days later. Miss AD died in the early hours of the 14th of October. Pathology. Post-mortem examination of Miss AD determined that the cause of death was attributed to a respiratory arrest in the setting of aspiration pneumonia and b seizures associated with Alzheimer's disease and Down syndrome. Investigation. Miss AD's death was reported to the coroner due to her family's concerns about her care and management, specifically regarding the missed doses of phenytoin in the days leading up to her death. The coroner referred this case to the coroner's prevention unit for a comprehensive review. The coroner's prevention unit, staffed by health professionals independent of the institutions under investigation, reviewed clinical records and statements obtained from Dr JR and the general manager of the aged care facility in conjunction with the autopsy findings. A statement from Dr JR detailed her interpretation of the facts as a request for a substitute for Miss AD's regular phenytoin suspension medication due to a supply issue. The facts was not marked as urgent or with a medication chart attached for a new prescription. Dr JR confirmed that she was unaware that Miss AD had missed two doses of phenytoin when she read the facts correspondence. This was contrary to her previous experience where nursing staff from an aged care facility would alert doctors promptly when a regular prescribed medication had been missed. Dr JR stated that there were arrangements for communication of urgent and non-urgent matters between her clinic and the four aged care facilities that she attends. When a matter requires her urgent attention, a fax marked as urgent is usually sent to the clinic, followed by a phone call to reception. This issue would then be brought to her attention or that of the duty general practitioner if she was unavailable. In retrospect, Dr JR advised that had she been privy to this information, she would have provided a phone order for both the regular tablets as well as a loading dose on the 4th of October. When she attended the aged care facility on the 4th of October, Dr JR did not review the electronic medication administration record as this system was not easily accessible without the assistance of nursing staff. The general manager of the aged care facility Miss KS provided a statement that followed Miss AD's death. The issue of medication non-availability at the pharmacy was reviewed at a quarterly medication advisory committee meeting. The committee recommended that the pharmacy should notify directly via email the aged care facility general manager, team leaders and other staff in the event that a medication was unable to be supplied rather than using the best dose electronic messaging system. According to Ms KS, the aged care facility had followed their aged care medication management policy and procedure in relation to this incident. The coroner's review identified that 1. While it is unclear whether Miss AD sustained a seizure prior to being found, she did sustain a seizure in the emergency department on the same day. This suggests that the sudden cessation of her regular phenytoin did increase her risk of seizure activity, which in turn increased her risk of aspiration pneumonia, which led to her death. 2. 
nursing staff at the aged care facility did not appreciate the importance of finituin as an essential medication that should not be abruptly discontinued due to the risk of increased seizure activity. This was evident in their failure to escalate communications with Dr. JR in a more proactive or urgent manner. 3. The delays in Miss AD receiving her regular anticonvulsant medication appear to be due to miscommunication between the aged care facility and Dr. JR. It was unclear whether communication between the pharmacy supplying the finituin and the facility contributed to the medication delay. 4. Staff at the aged care facility were not equipped to handle scenarios wherein essential medications are unavailable. It was recognised that these were areas of poor staff instruction with no formal written directive. The facility's aged care medication management policy and procedure did not address the two key issues relevant to this incident, namely the non-supply of prescribed medication from the pharmacy and communications with the prescribing doctor in relation to missed doses of essential medication. Recommendations The recommendations of the coroner in relation to Miss AD's case were for an update of the facility's aged care medication management policy and procedure to include instructions to staff on a the urgent management of non-supply and non-availability of medications from the pharmacy and b communication with the prescribing doctor about missed doses of essential medications. It was also suggested that the aged care facility review the need for internal pharmacology education of essential medications for all staff responsible for the supervision and administration of medication to residents. Author's comments. This case highlights the intrinsic weaknesses holes in reason's Swiss cheese model in our existing systems of health and aged care that allow for accumulative errors to lead to patient harm. Barriers to communication between practitioners and teams are intrinsic in healthcare systems. Miscommunication or non-effective communication are major factors in adverse events in healthcare settings. New technologies and e-health platforms provide avenues to integrate complex processes and information. However, our increasing reliance on electronic messaging technologies should not detract from personal responsibility to ensure message accountability. Let's now listen to a description of our second case report titled An Interrupted Drug Round. An Interrupted Drug Round, from Case Pracy author, Dr. Supriya Ramakrishnan. Clinical Summary Mr. P was a 61-year-old male resident of an aged care facility with a past history of neurosurgery for a ruptured arteriovenous malformation. As a consequence of this injury, he developed cognitive impairment, dysphagia, personality change, epilepsy, and recurrent pneumonia. One afternoon in early September, Mr. P was reportedly tired and lethargic. He had a low-grade fever, was short of breath, hypoxic with reduced oxygen level, and had low blood pressure. Mr. P was administered to Pentadol slow-release 100mg by a patient care worker. 
Shortly after administration of this medicine, the personal care worker realised that Mr P had received another patient's medication, so the personal care worker immediately informed the registered nurse on duty. A medical review was organised and a locum doctor, Dr SN, examined Mr P and documented the medication administration error. Clinically, he considered Mr P had pneumonia and prescribed antibiotics with 15-minute observations. He noted, patient was in respiratory distress before the medication was given in error. That same day, the RN requested another medical review. A second locum doctor, Dr BR, to attend, who reassessed Mr P and diagnosed a lower respiratory tract infection and recommended that staff continue to conduct regular observations of Mr P at the aged care facility. An hour later, Mr P became unconscious and an ambulance was called. Mr P arrived at hospital with altered conscious state and type 2 respiratory failure due to hypoventilation. His Glasgow coma score was 14 out of 15. The venous blood gas obtained on arrival demonstrated a carbon dioxide level of 178 millimetres of mercury. The reference range was 35 to 45 millimetres of mercury. Mr P received doses of naloxone and was admitted to the intensive care unit where he spent eight days undergoing treatment for aspiration pneumonia, requiring non-invasive ventilation, atrial fibrillation, and hypotension, requiring intravenous fluid and noradrenaline. He was subsequently moved to the medical ward, and two weeks later, he was transferred to a subacute hospital. However, his health continued to deteriorate, and a decision was made to provide palliative care. He died in the presence of his family, almost four weeks after the medication error. Pathology. A forensic pathologist performed an external examination of Mr P's body and reviewed a post-mortem computed tomography scan. The findings showed a previous craniotomy and right lobe consolidation in the lungs. He was cachectic with a body mass index of 14, with a reference range of 18.5 to 25. The cause of death was attributed to pneumonia. Investigation. A death certificate was issued at the time. However, Mr P's death was reported to the coroner approximately one week after his death due to family concerns. His death was investigated as it was considered unexpected, unnatural, or to have resulted directly or indirectly from an accident or injury based on the Coroner's Act 2008, Victoria. The coronial investigation included a review of statements made by family, care providers and treating clinicians, as well as various clinical and care records made available to the coroner's prevention unit. The investigation revealed that Mr P was frail and required some assistance with activities of daily living. Notations in the clinical record indicated he was frequently refusing food and his weight had been declining for several months prior to the medication incident. The aged care facility had consulted with medical and allied health staff in an effort to address the loss of weight. Interestingly, Mr P had received and declined the use of nasoenteric feeding. About one week after the medication error and about three weeks prior to Mr P's death, the aged care facility manager had had a meeting with his daughter. At this meeting, the family were informed that Mr P had been given the wrong medication by a personal care worker. 
The family queried whether Mr P may have lived longer if the medication error had not occurred. The forensic pathologist opined that given the medication was incorrectly administered a month prior to Mr P's death, it was unclear if it contributed to his death, especially given Mr P had multiple comorbidities. The medication error had multiple contributing factors. The personal care worker had commenced the round to administer medication with pre-prepared medications to give to another resident. However, on arrival to that resident's room, he was not present. The personal care worker proceeded on to Mr P's room. However, this task was interrupted by providing assistance to another resident with toileting. The personal care worker was also managing the aftermath of another resident's fall and providing palliative care. The personal care worker reported that when she attended Mr P's room, she had a lapse in concentration, leading to her dispensing the other resident's medication to Mr P. The coroner's prevention unit considered that when the medication error was identified, the response was immediate, appropriate and timely with open disclosure occurring to inform the family. The Australian Nursing and Midwifery Federation states that personal care workers are not qualified to give medicines, but may help people who are able to take their own medicine from a pre-packaged medicine container. The Coroner's Prevention Unit was aware that the practice of personal care workers assisting residents with medications was common to many aged care facilities. Following the coronial investigation, the aged care facility implemented a policy that all staff had to have their medication administration competencies reassessed with a new and improved medication course. The aged care facility also moved to employing enrolled nurses to administer medications. The aged care facility implemented the use of a medications rounds do not disturb vest to minimise disruption of staff during the rounds. The coroner acknowledged the changes made by the aged care facility to improve resident safety. Coroner's findings. The coroner found that the personal care worker's lack of experience and knowledge and the interruptions experienced during the medication round contributed to the error of giving the incorrect medication to Mr P. In addition, system failures in staffing levels, skill mix and workload contributed to the medication error. There was no evidence to suggest the medication error caused or contributed to Mr P's death. The death occurred in the setting of significant functional decline over several months. However, the medication error was considered an issue of significant public interest. As such, this finding was distributed to the Royal Commission into aged care quality and safety. Let's now listen to the expert commentary, which contains advice about how to make it easier for people to do the right thing and harder to do the wrong thing. It's titled Human Factors and Medication Safety. Human Factors and Medication Safety from authors Dr. Rafaela Schnitka and Ms. Jen Morris. Introduction. Here we are presented with two medication-related adverse events one in which medication was administered to the wrong resident and one in which doses were missed due to delayed supply. When reading these two cases in hindsight, it is easy to jump to conclusions and they blame on individual staff. A common response might be, 
why wasn't the staff member more careful in double-checking the resident's ID? Or how could they let the medication run out without following up with a phone call? Our judgment is naturally coloured by the fact that we now have a bird's-eye view of all of the facts and the outcome of the actions of frontline staff. These common responses occur because we are susceptible to both hindsight bias, the human tendency to perceive past events as more predictable at the time of the event than they actually were, and outcome bias, the human tendency to judge the quality of human actions differently when we know the outcome of those actions. Both biases can be problematic, as they prevent us from considering people's actions in the context of the information they had at the time. Therefore, they are a barrier to truly understanding why people acted the way they did, and therefore how future events could unfold in a way that will help prevent similar events. Human factors. The study of human factors examines the interactions between people with their cognitive and physical capabilities and limitations and the systems in which they work. It focuses in particular on the capabilities and limitations we cannot change, which makes us human. For example, vulnerability to distraction, limitations in how many things we can hold in our mind at once, or the tendency to interpret information in light of past experience. Human factors professionals attempt to understand how human performance is affected by the broader system, such as the design of the work environment, task complexity, organisational priorities, and technology design. Most importantly, human factors are used to design systems in a way that accounts for our innate capabilities and limitations, and thereby make it easier for people to do the right thing and harder to do the wrong thing. Aged care is a complex system. Similar to other systems that care for people, aged care is complex and consists of multiple layers similar to an onion. At the core of the system is the interaction between the resident and staff, the care that occurs at the front line. The onion model shows that the interaction between residents and staff being at the core of aged care is affected by systems factors that go far beyond these direct interactions. For example, task and technology design, teamwork, policies and procedures set by organisational management and regulatory influences. Consequently, these systems factors need to be considered when attempting to understand how resident care can go wrong. Applying systems thinking to medication safety, case studies. By applying a human factors lens, we will show that both cases, while different in their specific details, occurred due to systems issues that contributed to the actions of frontline staff. Require solutions that address the design of the broader system rather than addressing the behaviour or performance of the individual. Reflections Case 1. Missed Medication In this case, prescribed doses of a resident's essential medication were missed due to ineffective communication between the aged care facility GP and pharmacy. Looking at this case with the system's perspective, the communication technologies and processes in place between the three providers were fragmented and convoluted, relying on multiple unintegrated systems such as the best dose medication system, phone, 
facts, and face-to-face -face methods of communication. Fragmented communication systems can increase the risk of ineffective communication as there is no central access to information. Facsimile technology is not amenable to adding forcing functions, a function that allows a task only to be finalised after a number of specific actions have been completed, such as a function requiring frontline staff to indicate the urgency of a medication request before submitting. This makes the process vulnerable to humans potentially omitting important or key steps when being disrupted or under time pressure. Humans have a natural tendency to fill gaps in available information by drawing on past experience. For example, in the GP's experience, urgent medication issues would be communicated by a fax marked urgent, accompanied by a medication chart and follow-up phone call and brought to their attention when they attended the aged care facility. As none of these cues were present, the GP did not categorise the issue as urgent. The best dose medication ordering system was a recently introduced system. People require time to learn and adopt to new ways of working. There is an increased risk for error in the early stages of transitioning to a new system. Depending on the complexity and usability, a system may be less or more learnable. Regardless, organisations need to support frontline staff to transition to new systems, especially if errors can have significant consequences for resident safety. We can see how this range of systems factors likely contributed to the communication breakdown and associated delay in medication supply. Reflections on case two, inadvertent wrong medication administered. In this case, the personal care worker made a mistake by administering medication to the wrong resident. We know that errors like these, performing a correct task, but in an incorrect context, can occur when we are interrupted or distracted while performing the task. It is well known that interruptions increase the potential for errors as they introduce additional cognitive demands. This can lead to failures in memory and information processing, thereby increasing the risk of errors. The potential for error as a result of distractions is especially high if workload is already at capacity, which can be exacerbated by staffing issues, acuity of patients, visitors, and other demands. Looking at the broader systems factors, we see that this worker was affected by multiple external factors beyond their control. For example, the staff member was interrupted and pulled away during the medication round to attend to other tasks. They also experienced an unexpected diversion from their work plan because the resident for whom the medication was intended was not in their room. The worker was also simultaneously juggling other demanding tasks, including managing the aftermath of another resident's fall and providing palliative care for yet another. While these systems' complexities are an inherent part of aged care environments, there were limited systems-based safeguards in place to support healthcare workers in managing these complexities effectively. Together with human vulnerability to distraction and cognitive overload, these systems factors would make any person in the worker's position vulnerable to this type of error. Therefore, 
solutions to prevent a similar event from reoccurring need to focus on the systems rather than the individual. Implementing systems-based solutions. Insights from the systems thinking approach allow us to not only better understand why adverse events happen, but also to develop systems improvement strategies for preventing them in the future. An intuitive response in both cases may be to urge people to be more careful and reinforce this with more policies, warnings and training. However, these responses are unlikely to be effective if implemented in isolation. This is because they focus on addressing individual performance at the expense of addressing wider systems issues that continue to undermine that performance. The degree to which various solutions will achieve effective system-wide improvement falls along a spectrum from weak to strong. Weak responses are those which focus on individual performance and behaviour without addressing wider systems issues for example, more training, instructing staff to reread a policy, or removing a person from performing a task. These responses are likely to be ineffective because human failability can never be eliminated, and these responses leave unaddressed vulnerabilities in the system. Punishing workers for reporting adverse events by removing them from duty can also have unintended consequences. It discourages future reporting due to fear of punitive action and thus increases the risk of systems problems not being brought to the attention of others. Moderate and strong responses target the design of the system rather than focusing on changing individual behaviour. Examples include changing physical surroundings, simplifying convoluted processes by removing unnecessary steps, and conducting usability testing of newly developed medical devices. Examples of moderate solutions include eliminating look or sound-alike medications, improving rostering, and implementing standardised communication tools. While strong solutions are the most desirable, they are not always available or applicable in practice. Where they are not possible, Aiming to implement solutions that are towards the strong end of the spectrum, focusing on the system rather than the individual, is the next best thing. Examples of strong systems-based responses. Introduce a web-enabled electronic logistics support system that automatically reorders ongoing medications earlier before supply is close to running out. The automation and longer time buffer builds an automatic safety net into the system. Introduce a web-enabled electronic communication system between aged care facilities, medical practitioners and pharmacies in place of faxes. Test the system with frontline workers and incorporate relevant forced functions such as compelling users to indicate urgency when submitting a prescribing request. Integrate IT systems so GPs, pharmacists and aged care facilities can share and access mutually important information. Introduce improved technology to match residents to their medications, for example, barcoding systems. The above responses have one common characteristic. They redesign the systems in which people work to support them to perform well rather than requiring people to continuously compensate for flawed systems.
When developing responses to affect change, remember, we can't change the human condition, but we can change the conditions in which humans work. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. Remember, the online print versions are available at our website at www.thecommunicates.com, which also include a list of resources and any references that the experts recommended. I'm Joseph Ibrahim. Thanks for listening.